We're in the middle of a series called Reenvisioning. It's a series that um, in some form or fashion we'll probably do every year or so. It's to remind us what our purpose is as a church. Not just this church, but remember in the first week we said corporately, universally as a church. What has God called the church to be about? We've boiled it down to a simple statement that hopefully is easy for us to remember. That, that our job, our, our reason for existing is to make disciples. And then you have to ask, what do those disciples look like? So we don't stop there. We say to make disciples who follow the Lord. Feed the sheep and free the world. And we key those three phrases around the three relationships that we find in Scripture that we have priority to. We have a relationship to God that is priority number one. We have a relationship to the body of Christ, to lock arms with other believers, not just locally, but but around the world. Actually, we'll get to that later. And priority number three to feed or I'm sorry, free the world. We have a responsibility towards those who don't know of the grace we've been singing about all morning. We have a joy that is to be completed as we share, as we share being light and salt in this in this world. Uh, Last week, uh, I said that Christianity, uh, both individually and corporately, uh, it really isn't that complicated. We talked about the simplicity that is the purpose of the church. Uh, When you boil it down, it, it really is simple. It's not that complicated. One of the last things I said, however, is that although it is simple, meaning not complicated, it isn't necessarily easy, right? It's simple, meaning not complicated, but it isn't necessarily easy. Here's my point. Christianity uh, may be hard, but it shouldn't be confusing. Like we shouldn't be running around and saying, I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to be doing here. I, I don't get it. I don't see what the God's plan is. I don't know what his purpose is for me. I don't understand you know, the big picture. I don't, I don't understand where we've come from, where we're going and what I'm supposed to be doing in the meantime. It shouldn't be confusing in that way for us. It's simple in that way. God's, God's given us direction. His word tells us everything that we need for life and godliness. Uh, in that way, it's not complicated, but that doesn't that doesn't mean to infer All right. In any form or fashion that it's easy. Right. I mean, it's not your own life testifies to the the very opposite. It's not easy. There are a few consistent reasons, I think, why living in Christ is difficult. A few consistent reasons why I think living this Christian life is difficult. Uh, Number one is uh, and it's. Uh, Although I put these in no particular order, it's probably number one. Number one is our flesh. Our flesh makes it difficult for us to live in Christ and allow Christ to live in us. Our our own selves get in our way. Those flesh patterns that we've built up in all that time that we spent outside of Christ. Now we drag our old carcass into our new life in Christ. And Christ comes and he lives in this in this flesh that has formed habits of the flesh that we have to we have to overcome. So our flesh uh, needs uh, to be given attention here as one of those points of difficulty of what makes this thing not complicated, but not easy. It's not easy. Uh, Paul declared war against his flesh. He talks of beating his own body into submission. There's another consistent reason I found uh, number two, not only our flesh, but life's pain. Our, our flesh makes living in Christ difficult, but life's, life's pain, life's hardship 
everything that life throws at us makes this walk in Christ not easy, right? If this isn't, if that's not a reality to you, you need only pick up the newspaper once in a while to, to learn about life's pain. It is mostly bad news. It's mostly amazingly sickening news. You need only uh, walk the floor of an ICU and, and, and look into the rooms to learn a little bit about life's pain. So our flesh brings us difficulty. Life's pain brings us difficulty, certainly. And then you've got to throw old uh, Satan in there, right? His opposition to us living in Christ creates massive difficulties for us. One of the... One of the Big reasons that it's not easy for you as you press in and try and get closer to Christ is because there's someone there opposing that relationship. There's someone there that opposes you to follow near to Christ. There's someone there that tries to distract you, to to separate you from that very primary relationship of you following God. Uh, you remember Job? He, he faced each one of these, right? And Job faced each one of these and, and he got a very interesting answer from God. I love the second half of the book of Job. It's God's response, uh, really just the very end. God's response to Job fighting through his flesh, through life's pain, and through Satan's attacks, right? He faced all of them. God didn't come in and give him specific answers to the specific attacks and issues of his life. You know what God did? God, God exposed himself to Job. He pulled back the curtain. He said, Job, take a look at who I am. And that's not that's not just a harsh word from God. OK, sometimes we read that and we take it that God's just being, uh, you know, authoritarian. God, uh, Job, you don't know, you know, who you're messing with here. That's that's not so much it as much as it. I think that's the that's the the needed answer. It's the right answer. It's the best possible answer that Job could find. Job didn't need answers to the specifics. He needed he needed nearness to God. He needed closeness to God. He needed a revelation from God. He needed the reality of who his God is. That's the best thing Job could have hoped for, even though it didn't seem like it maybe on the face of things. In the end, you remember Job's response? Job just says, uh, I, I've got nothing to say. And he just falls down in the presence of God. I imagine, though, that he found in his falling a great comfort and rest. Not in answers, but in, but in the presence of that living God, the creator of all that Job saw. We saw this a couple of weeks ago back in Matthew 8, right? Disciples got on the boat with Jesus and uh, everything was good. Jesus, go ahead and take a nap. We got this. We're all fishermen. We, you know, we do the boat thing all the time and uh, we're going to take care of this. Go ahead and take your nap. And uh, the storms come, right? And uh, things get a little hectic in life. And they freak out and they run down like, Lord, you got to save us here because what? We're going to die. We're going to die. And we said that uh, they didn't what? They didn't realize fully who it was they had on the boat with them. They didn't they didn't fully understand who who Lord was as they cried out to him in fear. Uh, The more you know about God, the better off you'll be when warring against your flesh, when dealing with life's pain and when combating Satan's opposition. The more you know about God, very simple, not easy, but very simple. The more you know about God, the clearer a reality 
He is to you, the better off you'll be in dealing with any one of those three areas. Your flesh, life's pain, Satan's opposition. Simply put, uh, I've found that uh, it, it isn't just important to realize who our God is, however. Right? It's one thing to know more about your God. It's one thing for God to reveal himself to you and for you to get it. You see who he is and it impacts you. There's this whole other thing, not just realizing who God is, but recalling who God is in the midst of those struggles. In the heat of the moment, if you will. In the heat of the moment, what you've realized at some point about God, you've got to recall in that moment. And for those of us who, who have realized a good bit, who God has revealed things about himself over a, over a, a number of years, perhaps, you've, you've, you've logged that much information about who your God is. We still struggle with the fact of when the heat is on, are we going to recall it? And, um, well, I guess the easiest way to say it is um, we tend to be forgetful. Even as believers, even as believers who have the information, even as believers who who have been who have been exposed to the magnificence of our God. There's something about our our sinful flesh that we still drag along into salvation. okay, until it is redeemed, that causes us to be forgetful Uh, in the face of the opposition, in the face of life's pain and in in the face of our in the dealing of our own flesh. When that heat is on, no matter what category it falls into, isn't it true? We just tend to be forgetful. I mean, it just it just seems to fly out of our head all that God has done and how he's he's shown himself to be strong when we are weak. King David faced this share of difficulty. In fact, we benefit tremendously from his psalms. Because on more than one of occasion, his psalms let us. Really watch him struggle with the faith. Have you recognized that? Um, there are moments in Scripture that we find encouragement through identification. Have you run into those times that you're reading, as you're reading through the Word, uh, you you come across something? Maybe you've read it before, but it hits you in a, in a in a fresh way, and you say, "That's exactly that's exactly how I feel." And this guy put it into words. There are those moments where we find encouragement through identification. Times when you say, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what my heart is longing for. Psalm 42 and 43 is where I want us to look this morning. Psalm 42 and 43, David, he pens this poem, this song perhaps. It says at the top, it is for the choir director, for the sons of Korah. They were workers in the temple. They were assigned duties of Worship, assigned duties uh, that corresponded to the worship of God in the very presence of God. And so David in Psalm 42 and 43, he he pens these two Psalms. um, I I believe they're one. Okay, Um, the chapters uh, separate them, but the the title uh, would, for one, help us to. Assume that the two could go together. We don't get a separate title where it says for the choir director. A mascal for the sons of Korah. That's that's the title that that the psalmist gave it. Okay, that's not the title that your your translator in your 
Bible gave it. Okay, you understand that the chapters and that little uh, italicized heading at the beginning of your chapter. Mine says thirsting for God in trouble and exile. Uh, The translator put that in there. David didn't put that in there. The psalmist didn't put that in there. The psalmist put the put the words for the choir director. We don't get that down in Psalm 43. You may have another heading there that that comes from your translator, but we don't get a separation here. The point is that these two psalms, they fit perfectly together. They they form a three part uh, soliloquy. And what we get here is and, and this is why I find it very helpful for us, as we read this, we can say, man, there are times when I, I go through that same exact thing. And I, I couldn't have put it in the words that David put it in or that the psalmist put it in. But that's exactly how I feel some days. What we get here is we get David warring with himself. And he, and he says it out loud. He, he puts it on paper. But it's this battle with David and David. Okay. It's a it's a battle with what David knows and what David feels. It's a battle with what David is experiencing in this life. It's pains, his flesh, Satan's opposition. You're going to see all three of those just bound up in this in this in this one psalm or in these two psalms. You're going to see him trying to balance what he what he sees in his life and what he knows to be true about his God. And isn't that there isn't that isn't that the struggle for us all? Isn't that the struggle for us all? Even though we know some things about God, it's implementing them on a daily basis when the heat is on. You see, David's going to find himself in a moment here where the heat is on. We don't exactly know the the situation here for the writing of these psalms. It was most likely one of the times where David found himself in exile. We're going to we're going to hear words that that would indicate that he is far away from the temple, that he is far away from the uh Presence, if you will, of God for God dwelt in the temple at the Ark of the Covenant. That was his that was his dwelling place at this point in time in eternity. And David was far from there for whatever reason. It could have been a number of stories that we go back and read of in David's life. He he was he was on the run. He was exiled from the holy city. He was exiled from there for God's presence. And it didn't go well. For David, being separated from God, well, it, it wasn't well in David's spirit. It wasn't well in his soul. It didn't, it didn't allow him to rest. And as troubles arise, as the heat's applied, we get this soliloquy of David warring in himself between what's going on on the outside, what's going on on the inside, what truth is, and what reality is, and, and which one gets to win today. Yeah. Do we go through that? Yeah. Verse one, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He, he's been separated from the very presence of God. Would you notice here in this inner, in this inner struggle, from the very beginning, the thing that the psalmist longs for first and foremost. It's not necessarily an answer to the pains. It's not necessarily an answer to that which life is throwing at him. It's not necessarily an answer to his physical exile. But it's, it's an answer to the separation he feels from the very, from the very presence of the God he is following. 
the longing of David's heart. Maybe this is part of what. Uh, what gets him the. Uh, the characteristic of, of being called a man after God's own heart. The heart of David is that he like a like a deer in a parched. Waterless land. Is longing for. Not stuff, not things, not even answers, but he's longing for his, his God. As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for, circle it, you, oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's the very presence of God that David longs for. In verse 3, we see his trouble. My tears have been my food day and night. Literally, my tears have been my meat day and night. He's chewing on his, his bitterness. His tears have run down to such a degree that he, he can taste them. They're palatable. It creates in the, in the saltiness, the bitterness. It represents the bitterness in David's life right now. While they say to me, and those who are saying this are those who oppose him. While they say to me all day long. Where is your God? Certainly life's opposition. You're going to hear the same thing down in verse 10. He's going to repeat that. Verse 4. Here's the inner battle going on. That's what he's feeling. That's the opposition that's coming against him. And what is his response? These things I remember. And I will pour out my soul within me. There's something in David that says, I'm, I'm not going to succumb. To the lie. I'm not going to succumb to what life is throwing at me. He's, there's something in him that wars against that. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. He remembers back with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. He remembers those moments in the presence of God. He remembers in worship. He remembers being in the temple. He remembers being in the very presence of God. That's what he's longing for here. Verse 5. It's the end of the first section of this soliloquy. Why, he asks of himself. This isn't a question of God. This is a question to his own soul. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? It's a check. Do you see it? It's David checking his own Heart, mind, and soul. It's like all this stuff is coming down on him. He's trying to figure it out. He says, I pour out my soul within me. It's just churning within him. He's trying to figure it out. He's struggling inside of himself, trying to balance truth with reality, life, and pain with God. And he comes with this wonderful question, verse 5, and he's going to ask the same question three times. Why are you in despair, O my soul? As if to say, you need not be. That's not the reality. That's not, that's not where we should be. My soul should not be in despair. Literally, that word despair, it's a beautiful picture. David, as a shepherd, he uses this, this word that uh, some of your translations may say, cast down or thrown down. It's an image, however, of, of a sheep. It's an image, uh, it's a word that was used of uh, when a sheep would somehow... Uh, fall down or flip itself over and its wool was so heavy at times when they had a full coat of wool 
that their body weight their they would essentially become top heavy and they'd be like a cockroach and they'd flip over on their back and they couldn't get up. Okay? That's what it means. That's what cast down. That's the word picture that it refers to. And the sheep, he's just sitting there squealing, kicking around on his back, right? And he, he can't flip himself over. He, he can't get out of it. And he begins, after a while, the weight of his body begins to actually suffocate. And he'll die if he can't get off of his back. David, as a shepherd, he's seen this before. He applies it to the, to the place that his soul is. And in some sense, this war inside of him, he feels like he's just kicking around on his back. He's helpless and he, he can't get himself uprighted. His world is flipped upside down and he can't get himself turned over. Why? Why are you in despair, oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And here's the truth. He's battling back. Watch this. Hope in God for I shall again praise him. I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. That word help is literally Salvation. Stronger than the word help. It's, it's that God will be strong to save me. And do you notice where salvation comes for David? It's back in what? The very presence of his God. It's not in, it's not in the hand, but it's in the, it's in the face. It's in the bosom of his God. It's in the very presence of his Savior. And he finds rest. We get another section. In the second and third section, you, you, find indications that this war that's going in going on in the in the heart and in the mind of David he begins to make advances he begins to improve his stance against it so here's his second go around oh my god my soul is in despair within me therefore i remember you notice that same phrase again the answer to his despair is to what recall who his god is i remember you From what? From the land of the Jordan in the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, all places where God showed his faithfulness in a strong way. We've been to the Jordan here on Sunday morning. You know the faithfulness of God at the Jordan. David says, all right, despair has gotten my world flipped upside down. And And I can't just sit here kicking and screaming in my pain. In my oppression, in my flesh, I've got to, in truth, flip this thing right side up. And what he remembers is who his God is. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. David has already said he was afflicted day and night. The truth that he speaks into this moment, the reality that he that he clings to here is that God will be with him day and night. God is faithful. No matter what our flesh offers up to us, no matter what life throws at us, no matter what Satan comes against us with, God is faithful day and night. And his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock. My rock. Does God seem like a rock in David's life at the moment? I don't think he does. But the truth is that God is a rock. And here's the war. Why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's going to say that again down in chapter 43. 2B. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I stuck in this? It, that that phrase, why do I go mourning? It's a picture. Uh, it's a picture of a funeral dirge. Paul sees his soul, his spirit just walking around as if somebody's died. When what he longs for is verses three, four. For I used to go along and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving. But because of what life's thrown at him, because of what his flesh is, is telling him. His soul feels not like a celebration of joy in the presence of God. His, his soul feels like somebody's died. He says, I, I, I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy. Verse 11. Why are you in despair? Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul. And why have you become disturbed within me? He's checking himself again here. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. It will come to be the help of my. And he adds something here that he didn't add in verse five for the help of my countenance, the salvation of my countenance. You know what your countenance is? It's that joy that you can just see in people. It's that it's that it's that Christ coming out of their very soul and spirit that just penetrates their very personhood without them saying a word. Their countenance, you could read someone's countenance on their face. And he says, the salvation of my countenance and my personal God. He gives you the third section here. Vindicate me, O God. Vindicate me. He gets a little more, uh, a little more courage. I think he's landing a little bit more on the God is faithful side here. He's beginning to. And plead my case against an ungodly nation. He trusts God. Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And now read his prayer. Verse three. Read what he longs for. Read his answer. What he needs. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them light God's presence, truth, the, the real, the real reality, not just the perceived reality. Let them lead me. Let those things guide my life, not the things that I, I see as reality, not my flesh, not the opposition of this world. Not the pain of this world. Let let them light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places back to the presence of God, whether he is there physically or not. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. We're back where we started. Where is his joy? Where is his rest? It's not in any stuff. It's in God. God is his exceeding joy. Joy and upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. Verse five, we get no indication here through all three of these sections. that any of the difficulty has gone away. Please notice that we get no indication here that things have gotten easier for David. 
What's happened here, however, is that David has struggled through. He's fought the good fight. He's he's fought the battle in his heart and in his mind and in his soul. He's he's talked himself through and out of this, Calvin says. Why are you in despair, O my soul? There's no need to be. And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The salvation of my countenance and my God. First Peter 4 says, don't be surprised when trials of all kinds, literally it says fiery ordeals of all kinds, come against you. For they are for your testing. And it says something odd. Don't don't look at them as though they were some strange thing happening to you. It's as if Peter Peter's saying, listen, just expect, just expect the opposition, just expect the pain, just expect the difficulty. It's not going to be easy. Question for us this morning is, how is our memory? How is our recollection when the heat is on? If you're going to be a follower of Christ, our priority number one, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you got to know that it isn't always going to be easy. In fact, difficulty is probably to be expected as the norm. The answer to the difficult days of Christianity, whether individual or corporately, is to keep your memory sharp. It's to keep your memory sharp. It's not just what you know about God. It's what you can recall in the heat of the moment when it when it's most needed. Um, My five year old's favorite excuse for when he does something wrong is I forgot. I forgot. And I mean, it can be real simple, too, right? Like, uh, buddy, listen, um, you can't punch your brother in the face. You just can't do that. I forgot. What do you mean you forgot? Oh, I just, I forgot. Some of us, uh, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way. I mean it. Um, as the word is to be used technically, some of us are ignorant to the reality of who God is. And again, I don't mean ignorant in in a negative way. I just mean ignorant in a technical way. Some of us, we just, some of you don't know because you haven't looked. You haven't listened. You haven't watched. You haven't maybe experienced God pulling back the curtain and saying, this is who I am. Maybe you haven't peered long enough. In his presence, maybe you haven't you haven't dwelt in his presence enough. Maybe you're not in the word enough. Maybe you're not in prayer enough to have stockpiled truth about who God is. That can help you in the heat of the moment that can help you when the pressure's on, because the more information that is there, the better chance you have of recalling that information when life throws whatever it's going to throw at you. We just we are forgetful. Right. As believers. We are forgetful. Scripture speaks of this. We need reminders, don't we? To write these same, thing, same things to you again is no trouble for me, and it's actually a benefit to you, Paul says. He says that several times in his writings. Think on these things. Don't focus on these things. 
Hide these things in your heart. Don't let them slip away. Don't let them, don't let them get away. Hide them in your heart. Cling to them. Write them on the doorposts of your home so you see them coming and going. Talk of them when you rise, when you walk around, as you get, all the time. And we're just forgetful people, aren't we? Over and over and over. Scripture says, remember, remember, remember. To Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Everywhere you turn around, be strong and courageous. Don't forget all that I've done for you. The Old Testament histories are basically recollections of what God has previously done, reiterated, repeated to the next generation. Here's who I am, and here's why I can be trusted. God says it to generation after generation after generation. Why? Because it slips away. Especially when the pressure is on, we just get dumb to the things of God. It's as if he's never done anything for us. It's as if he's never shown himself to be strong. The answer, the answer for us is, as David found it, to run to the very presence of God. It's to know our God better. It's to, it's to follow nearer to him. When we talk about following the Lord as priority number one, it's, it's about a proximity. It's about a nearness. It's about a clinging to. It's about a chasing after. It's about a drawing Close. It's about a resting in. It's about a sitting under. It's about a being embraced by. So that when storms come, we're not looking around for our God, wishing we were in his care. We are we are safe in the arms of our Father. One of the things God has built into this thing called Christianity individually and corporately, is communion. He said, do this in remembrance of me. I don't think that that's just about God wanting his glory stated over and over and over. It has something to do with God's glory being recounted. But I think for us as a memorial, as a memorial as it is, that of Lord's Supper and Communion, uh, it's designed to be something that helps us recall who our God is. Do this in remembrance of me. Break the bread, take the juice. They are symbolic of my body and of my blood broken and poured out for for you. Isn't it interesting that God did not choose some other type of memorial system like build me this statue over here? I mean, what if it were in Israel? What if it were in, you know, Russia? How, how would we benefit? We've got to make a trek over there. And maybe once in our life we get, we get to, to visit that memorial. Isn't it interesting that he gives us a, a traveling daily memorial in communion with everyday elements, something we see and need, in fact, every day? I mean, you've got to eat. You've got to drink. It's interesting that he would choose something that would cause us to remember him every day. I think it has something to do with the fact that we are a forgetful people. We let who our God is and what he is capable of slip our minds so easily.
we're going to take communion. Men, if you are going to help with communion, come on up. Week to week, we have communion set here at the table so that you can participate in communion individually or as a family or with someone else in the congregation on your own. Come on over here, guys. And um, this morning, we want to we want to remember together. I think that's good to do that. We remember together. Preston's going to going to lead us in a song while the guys hand out the uh, the bread. Let's do the bread, guys. Let's do the bread first. Round. And um, once you get the once you get the bread, just hold on to it. And um, and Preston will lead in prayer for the bread once everybody has been passed the uh, plate. And then after that, we'll uh, we'll partake of the wine. But as he leads in this song, why don't you just hold on to your bread and think about. Think about that symbol, think about that memorial. Think of why he gives the words. Do this in remembrance of me. Think about how forgetful we tend to be, even as believers. Why don't you meditate on on those truths this morning? Take my life, I lay it down At the cross where I am found All I have I give to you, O God.